to the Business, Arts, Workforce, and Aviation Services Committee of Denver City Council. This session of the Business, Arts, Workforce, and Aviation Services Committee begins now. Good afternoon. You, it's Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. You have, uh, uh, you are now tuning in to the Biz Committee, Business, Arts, Aviation, Climate, and Workforce. Um, I guess we should officially change the name because we do have CASR that reports to Biz, but uh, that's why I keep saying climate every every week. Um, I'm Chris Hines. I represent Denver City Council's District 10. Um, we have one action item. We have one briefing. And we have uh, about six consent items. Uh, we have one consent items, one consent item that has been pulled off and will be uh, an action item, and that's 24-0233. Um, but before we get into the action items and uh, in the briefing, let's go through introductions. Do we have anyone online? No. Um, let's start to my immediate left. Hi, everyone. Sarah Parody. I represent the city at large. Chantel Lewis, District 8. Kevin Flynn, <clears throat> wow. Kevin Flynn, Southwest Denver, District 2. Good afternoon, Diana Romero-Campbell, uh, District 4, Southeast Denver. Good afternoon, Stacey Gilmore, District 11. Great, uh, so we have an action item and a briefing. If we could keep the, or two action items, because one has been pulled off consent, if we could uh, do our best to keep the action item to about 45 minutes. Um, and if we, yeah, that, that would be lovely. So um, uh, it looks like it's with the airport. Um, Director Washington, are, did you want to provide some opening remarks? Great. Introduce yourself and take it away. Uh, Phil Washington, the CEO of uh, Denver International Airport. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Chair Hines, uh, Council President Torres is not here, but uh, uh, and the committee uh, members as well. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, presenting to you uh, today about Pena Boulevard. Uh, when the airport opened in 1995, then served 31 million annual passengers. And of course, traffic on Pena Boulevard uh, was primarily airport based. However, in the last 30 years, uh, passenger growth at then uh, and non-airport developments adjacent to Pena Boulevard uh, and increased freight traffic uh, have added all significant demands to the road, the road being Pena Boulevard. Uh, in 2023, DEN served 77.8 million annual passengers from that original 31. Uh, and we're preparing to serve 100 million passengers in the next couple of years. So air traffic projections uh, indicate that then could serve as many as 120 million uh, passengers by 2045, which is uh, the 50th anniversary uh, of the airport in 2045. So thoughtful planning of Pena Boulevard is critical uh, to the continued success of then. Uh, I want to uh, uh, take a moment to clarify the funding uh, source for this phase one uh, project that you are going to be presented uh, in a few minutes. 
Um, that funding source is DEN's capital improvement plan. And as many of you know, uh, the airport is an enterprise and DEN's revenue use is restricted by US uh, Department of Transportation and the FAA, of course, as a department of, um, or division of US Department of Transportation. Uh, airport revenues must be used for capital and operating costs of the airport and the local airport system and cannot be used outside of that. Um, our revenue cannot be used uh, to pay for city projects or uh, salaries unrelated to the airport that should be funded from the general fund. Um, uh, I want to uh, mention that there's been a lot of discussion as it relates to the item uh, that was taken off um, the agenda, and that is uh, the mobility study and the $5 million that's associated uh, with that mobility study. Uh, that $5 million was approved by uh, the Denver Regional Council of Governments for the Pena Boulevard Environmental Study. Um, the cost associated with that study is a total of $18.5 million. And that $18.5 million is split <clears throat> two ways. $13.5 million is being funded by DEN and $5 million is being funded by the Denver Regional Council of Governments or Dr. Cog. And just a little bit about that split. That split of 13.5 and 5 million represents 73% and 27%. The 73% under FAA rules uh, represents aeronautical uses, 73%. Aeronautical uses that we can fund because it's aeronautical. The 27% or the 5 million in this case represents non-aeronautical, then cannot fund the non-aeronautical uses. So you got the 13.5 million, you've got um, uh, the 5 million, uh, and we are paying that 70, 73%, which is uh, 13.5. Um, we had to pursue, since we could not fund the 5 million or the 27%, we had to pursue the remaining from other sources uh, because there are non-aeronautical, which we cannot fund. Um, we did not want to seek uh, the 5 million from Denver, the Denver General Fund uh, because we understand uh, the issues uh, with uh, the budget challenges for the city. Um, so we uh, instead pursued that 5 million or that 27% non-aeronautical, we pursued it through federal dollars that is administered by Dr. Cobb. And that is that 5 million. Uh, and so uh, we want to, this will be reinforced uh, in the presentation uh, in a few minutes, but I wanted to clarify that 5 million uh, we again pursued it through federal dollars administered by Dr. Cog, did not want to go through the, the general fund for the city of Denver because we know that there's challenges. Uh, and so that is that breakdown. Now of that total of 18.5 million, 
uh, that we need for the environmental pieces of this project or the environmental study, 1.2 million of that total um, goes to transit demand management, uh, which looks to decrease the number of single occupancy vehicles or trips. Uh, and if this action uh, is not approved, uh, then we can't move forward on the transit piece uh, of this item uh, to uh, pursue the decrease in single occupancy vehicles. Um, so we were thinking about the challenges with the Denver General Fund when we pursued the federal dollars. That five million is federal dollars administered by Dr. Cobb. Uh, so before we get into uh, the Pena presentations, I wanna provide you just a quick update uh, to Den's West Security Checkpoint. On this past Monday, uh, passengers experienced uh, significant lines across the security screen checkpoint, uh, checkpoints resulting in some lengthy wait times. Uh, we're working closely uh, with uh, local and national TSA leadership to understand what resources and staffing they have in place, how the lanes were being operated, uh, and what advanced planning took place on Monday. This was extremely long lines, uh, and uh, we were very, very uh, concerned about, still, still are concerned about it. Um, uh, we continue to work together with TSA to work through these issues, but we have also voiced our strong opinion uh, that DEN's TSA agent headcount must be increased to meet the demand, the growing demand um, that we have uh, at DEN. So we will keep you posted. We are encouraged by the performance of the new equipment uh, in the new security checkpoint uh, and the vast ma majority of times wait wait times are below the 10 minutes. So now I'd like to uh, introduce uh, Lisa Wynn. Uh, she's our senior planner. She's gonna present um, the very latest activity related to the Pena Boulevard transportation and mobility study. Um, we wanted to do um, a briefing on the mobility study. Uh, the action item is really the only uh, thing that relates uh, to the mobility study is that it's Pena Boulevard. So the action item really has nothing to do uh, in, in many respects to the mobility study uh, itself. After Lisa, uh, we have Senior Vice President Brandon Ganey of Design, Engineering, Construction, and he will cover phase one, the phase one B contract, the action item before you. Uh, thank you, Director Washington. Um, I have received guidance from our attorneys that I was incorrect in the parliament, parliamentary procedure. So 0233, uh, the $5 million can be pulled off consent, but it cannot be voted on today uh, because, um, uh, because we did not provide adequate notice for the public. Uh, so I apologize for the guidance that I gave to Dan and to my colleagues. Uh, it was incorrect. So. Um, we can, uh, we'll schedule that for the next available uh, time and I'll work with um, uh, central staff to make sure that that happens. So uh, colleagues, I apologize for the, uh, for the incorrect guidance and, and uh, to the public and to the airport. Um, 
So at any rate, let's uh, let's keep going. All right, great, thank you so much. Hi, Lisa Wynn, Principal Transportation Planner at Denver International Airport. Thank you so much, uh, Chair Hines and Council members for allowing us to share a little bit today about our Pena Boulevard Transportation Mobility uh, Study and some of the updates. So I will jump um, right away to one of the big outcomes that we have from our mobility study. One of the key pieces as we were studying how people move to and from the airport, what's our transit share, uh, what can we strive towards was really to set some goals. So I'm gonna be upfront right now in sharing that we're really excited. Um, we're publicly sharing that by 2035, Den has a couple of transportation target goals. Um, first one is we want to decrease the amount of single occupancy vehicles or drive alone trips by DEN employees by 10%. Um, currently that's at about 71%. We're hoping that by 2035, we can drop that to 61%. Um, this includes several different strategies, which I'll talk about later, but um, the reason that we wanted to make sure that for our employees, it wasn't strictly just a transit target, but a drive alone target was to also encompass other modes of sustainable transportation, such as van pooling and carpooling. Um, the second goal that I'm really excited to share is that we, by 2035, are hoping to increase the transit share at Denver International Airport for our passengers by 10%. Currently, it's about 9%, and we're hoping that by 2035, this increases to 19%. In addition to, obviously, RTD services locally, the A-Line, the regional buses, we also want to make sure that we look at other holistic transit options. That includes mountain shuttles, that includes United's landline services to Fort Collins, Breckenridge, um, that could include Bustang coming out to the airport. So looking at other sustainable transit options for our passengers as well. Um, again, very, very excited for us at the airport. Um, our goal is to be the greenest airport in the world, um, to continue to harp that these are our sustainable transportation goals and that we are indeed moving in a better direction. And with that, I am excited to share some of the 19 different strategies that we have for our transportation demand management plan, also known as TDM. Um, this was developed from over 70 different strategies and goals and narrowed down to 19 different strategies so that within the next 10 years, we're hoping to not only impact our employees and workforce at DEN, but also how our passengers move and choose to come to and from the airport. Um, the first set on the left shows the TDM program setup. Um, in the initial phase, we're gonna be looking at branding it. Um, I know the word TDM is a little bit of a mouthful. And frankly, if you're not in the transportation space, you probably don't know what the acronym means. So we'll be looking at how we can brand it to make a little bit more clear that these are goals to encourage sustainable transportation. Um, as we look into priority one, these are our initial service offerings. Several of these strategies um, I'm excited to share are actually not new things under the sun. Um, they're existing programs that we at DEN want to bring to the airport, uh, maybe better communicate them, better utilize them. I'm gonna highlight a few of them. I'm gonna not go over every single one of the 19 today, but um, do feel free to ask me any questions if you have any specific questions on them. Um, so the first one I'm gonna highlight is the Airport Guaranteed Ride Home Program, uh, also known as GRH, sorry for all the acronyms. Um, a Guaranteed Ride Home Program is actually offered by the Denver Regional Council of Governments currently. Um, what it is, is any employer in the Denver metro area can buy into essentially an insurance program for their employees employees. 
Um, employees who are choosing to take sustainable transportation like the bus or the train to work um, will then have an insurance to get home should there be an emergency that arises. So for example, if an employee comes to DEN and they take the A-line and maybe their child gets sick or they themselves fall ill and they need to leave immediately, um, they don't have time to wait for the next train or bus. They gotta get home now. And what this would cover is it would cover a taxi ride or an Uber ride for them to go home. Um, at the cost of about $5 per an employee per year, we think this is a really great insurance program to help hopefully make the decision for employees to make that more sustainable transportation choice. So really excited to look into that. Um, couple other ones are looking at van pooling and carpooling. Again, not innovative, shocking new ideas, but we want to see how we can better incentivize our employees at the airport to perhaps organize a van pool. How can we subsidize that? Um, how can we encourage our employees to carpool to the airport? Um, we recognize that RTD services, while they're vast, may not hit every neighborhood for our employees. And I think these are really good target areas where we could organize van pools to and from the airport. Um, another one I do want to point out is that these are not strictly all just employee strategies. Some of them are also passenger facing. Um, one of them is the idea of a transit rider security line. Uh, this actually was an idea that spurred as we were studying through Boston Logan. So in Boston, um, the idea is if you take the Silver Line, which is a bus that's free from downtown Boston to the airport, um, you get a little pass, a little piece of paper that allows you as a passenger who's a transit rider to now be in a different security queue line for TSA. Um, we think this could certainly have some really good legs and be lucrative for uh, passengers at the airport and hopefully be a really good incentive for folks to take public transit. So more on that to come. Um, another couple ones that I do want to highlight on here are within that priority two offering. Um, one of them is bicycle storage facilities. Um, we've heard loud and clear from several of not only our employees, but several of our community members that there's interest in having uh, better bike storage, um, whether that's someone who's biking to the bus or maybe biking to their nearest A-line station, um, having a spot at the airport for them that is um, safer, maybe having some bike tools in there. So we're definitely looking at better bike storage facilities. Um, another one that I'm excited to talk about is the idea of transit purchases uh, during ticketing. So this is an idea that um, we'll be working with our airline partners on, but essentially as an individual is buying their airline ticket online and they're purchasing their airfare, they hit that last final screen. Um, it says, would you like to book a hotel? Would you like to reserve a rental car? Um, we would like to add an option on there that says, would you like to buy your transit pass? Um, we think this is a great opportunity for our passengers and our customers as they are um, doing the trip planning to provide that resource for them so that they know more about the Denver transit system and so they can hopefully make that informed decision while they're already trip planning. Um, like I said, there are several of these strategies out of all these 19 strategies that we're hoping to implement within the next decade at DEN. Um, something I do want to pause and point out is, um, as Phil mentioned, of that $5 million grant from Dr. Cog, 1.2 million of that is earmarked specifically for implementing these 19 different strategies. So if you like what you see on these strategies in front of you, um, know that that is hopefully coming through the grant. So we'll be really excited to implement several of these in the next decade. So more on that to come. But like I mentioned, these are all with the big overarching goal that we want to encourage more sustainable transportation, not only for our passengers to DEN, but for our employees and workforce as well. 
Um, couple next slides. So we are in the midst of finalizing our study, but before then um, we have our third round of public engagement. So um, this is a slide that showcases the different documents um, and outcomes for our uh, Pena Transportation Mobility Study. Um, first one is our Pena Master Plan. This is focusing more on the main line of Pena, the transportation demand, um, also some of the alternative concepts that are being considered. Um, this is the transportation plan study and it is up for review right now. Um, second one is the transportation demand management plan. This is the big deliverable from the mobility study. Um, this outlines not only the goals that I just mentioned, but in depth, more detail, those 19 different uh, transportation demand management strategies that we just touched on a little bit. Um, and then finally, the gateway area travel study. Um, we've partnered with Dottie downtown to better understand uh, how folks would be moving in those neighborhoods and those um, streets that surround the Penyon network as well too. Um, and then where we are in our timeline, we are right now at um, number 11. We are at the third round of community and stakeholder engagement. Um, so everyone is welcome to visit our website. Our project website is um, flydenver.com slash Pena underscore plan. Uh, we have all of these documents and information for folks to review. Um, it'll be up for the next couple of weeks. And then if folks have any comments, we're certainly happy to um, hear them as well. Uh, once that public review closes, we will be finalizing our um, master plan. And then as far as the transportation portion of the house, um, we will be rolling into the NEPA phase, which is the federalized environmental study. Um, this is a pretty robust uh, process that we will be working with the feds on um, to better understand what that future outcome for the Pena Boulevard corridor looks like. Um, and then parallel to that, we will be working on implementing the transportation demand management plan that I mentioned as well too. So um, moving on with those 19 different strategies, how do we implement them? Um, how do we get some of that moving? So yeah, and with that, I'm gonna pass this over to um, Brandon Ganey to talk a little bit more. Good afternoon, Chair Hines, council members. My name is Brandon Ganey, Senior Vice President of Design Engineering Construction at the airport. Um, I did do a time check, so I will try to um, breeze through this to allow for uh, questions at the end and some dialogue. So today we're here to request approval for a contract with Flatiron Constructors. The amount is $50.793 million and the source of funding is the DIN Enterprise Capital Improvement Plan funds. The term of the contract will be 900 days from notice to proceed. We anticipate starting in the spring of 2024 and concluding in fall of 2026. The purpose of this project is really rooted in safety and efficiency. And the scope is to reconstruct pavement at the Pena Boulevard uh, from the terminal outbound to Jackson Gap. And it also improve bus operational movements. Advance some slides too. Um, we wanna clarify how this project is funded. Uh, Phil briefed uh, you on it a little bit while, a little bit ago, but we wanna understand or share with you um, how or what DEN Capital Enterprise Capital Improvement Plan funds can be used for and what they can't be used for. So the Federal Aviation Administration puts constraints on these funds and it can be used for the airport and the local airport system, but they cannot be used to pay for municipal projects or salaries unrelated to the airport that should be funded from the general fund. It also cannot be used for charity or community purposes that are not directly or substantially related 
to the operation of the airport. So the Pena Boulevard phase 1B project is really to complete the remaining balance of work that was approved by council in 2019 for $93.5 million. In March of 2020, DEN descoped this portion of the project due to COVID and funding challenges. But phase 1A, which you'll see in the green uh, highlighted here on this slide, was completed in 2022 for approximately $40 million. So given the cost or the proposed cost of this contract at 50 million, 50.793 million, we will actually complete this scope of work and achieve the same end result for what we had set out to do with the original contract for less than or approximately equal to the same amount. The components of this contract or this scope of work for phase 1B are really three main, three main initiatives. And as I mentioned, they're all rooted in safety. So the direct access ramps from the east and west terminal outbound to Newcastle Road, that's shown here. And let me see, does the cursor show up if I move it? Well, anyway, the dotted lines, the dotted blue lines show these new direct access routes that rental car buses will take directly from the terminal, east and west, outbound, so that they will never have to get on Pena. This creates resiliency on Pena and also safety on Pena by removing these large buses and getting them direct access to where their ultimate endpoint is, which is the rental car facilities. Pena Boulevard is aging uh, in, in, in uh, its pavement. And so it's also just a reconstruction of this section of Pena Boulevard and it'll reduce overall maintenance costs. And the last component is changing the Jackson Gap interchange to a diverging diming interchange. And you can see that um, again at this uh, first intersection that is west of the terminal outbound Pena. So one item we really wanted to point out because it's some new data that we've been able to collect over the last year of utilizing Pena phase 1A. By doing the safety improvements to Pena phase 1A, we've realized in a year's worth of data, a 50% reduction in crashes in that section of Pena. We hope to realize the same result on Pena phase 1B. We've talked a little bit about some of these benefits, but in general, the direct access ramps provide a dedicated bus only route, removing rental car and DIN shuttle buses from Pena Boulevard. It replaces pavement that has reached its end of life and thus resulting in annual maintenance repair costs, uh, savings in annual maintenance repair costs. But really we talked about this as being rooted in operational safety improvements. And so it really provides improved ingress and egress modifications and improved weaving movements along Pena to provide acceptable traffic operations. These improvements will be made on the same current alignment that Pena is already on. The Jackson Gap Street Diverging Diamond Interchange reduces delays and it also benefits uh, the public Public, all public users, shuttle bus service, as well as our rental car bus service. These improvements also accommodate the proposed site location of a future consolidated rental car facility. And in addition to that, it adds new pedestrian multi-use paths, as well as dedicated bus only lanes for access to the Den Jefferson terminal. 
So we followed our, our standard process in advertising, forecasting, and doing community outreach events um, to publicize this project. We published it, as always, on our DEN Commerce Hub website, specifically in our Future Opportunities webpage. We held community outreach events in September and October for this project. And then we advertised in November, uh, received bids in December, and we received four successful bids. And when I say successful, they're responsive. Um, they were both uh, deemed responsive by our DEN Business Management Services, which is our contract procurement division within DEN, as well as our division of small business opportunity. They reviewed them for achieving their MWBE goals, uh, minority and women business enterprise goals at 17%. We issued a notice to a low notice, I'm sorry, a parent notice to a parent low bidder to Flatiron Constructors in January. To talk a little bit about the minority and women business enterprise goals, the goal was set for 17%, and Flatiron has committed to meeting that goal. Additionally, We've included the Denver Economic Development Opportunity Workforce Development Goal for horizontal or infrastructure projects at 3%. This is one of our first implementations of this goal, the new Workforce Goal, uh, which supports apprentice programs on our projects um, since the ordinance has been passed. I know all of us are currently working through the rules and regulations on that, but we felt like it was really important to get this in the contract. One other component that I think is uh, meaningful and worth pointing out, I'm gonna go back just a couple slides. So uh, you've heard us and heard Phil talk about the Center of Equity and Excellence in Aviation, or you might hear it called SIA. So we really are working to find opportunities to contract with historically underutilized businesses, and especially prime contracting for those businesses. Part of this project was originally the gun club on-ramp to inbound Pena which you'll see on the far west or left corner of this slide, it's a small uh, purple line. And what that is, and it's an enabling project that allows us to essentially close the on-ramp to inbound Pena on Jackson Gap. And so we needed this project in place prior to moving forward with um, the Jack this larger project, Jackson Gap. And what we did was we carved out this because we felt like this was a good opportunity to pull this out of the overall phase 2B scope of work, where it was really originally included, and actually worked with um, Department of Small Business and um, DSBO, Department of Small Business Opportunity, to set aside that for an SBE firm. And Shadows Concrete was awarded that job at $5.5 million, which is a really meaningful project. Chados is knocking it out of the park. They're doing a great job right now. If you are driving on Pena inbound, you'll see that work. And the other great thing that I think came from that is that Chato's contract is a subcontractor on this larger phase 1B work under Flatiron. These are just a few photos showing the existing conditions. The photos on the left are the existing conditions of Jackson Gap showing the rental car shuttle buses having to intermix with uh, common standard vehicle traffic on Jackson Gap. It's not efficient or safe. And the photos on the right, right show the existing conditions on Pena, Pena Boulevard and both Jackson Gap. So this is a little bit more detail in the direct connect ramps for the buses. It creates dedicated routes for rental car and den shuttle buses to not mix with the public traffic. It removes the rental car and den shuttle buses from Jackson Gap, uh, I'm sorry, from the Jackson Gap interchange ramp 
and it provides resiliency for Pena during events. This is supported by the rental car companies and we also will be able to rehabilitate uh, Newcastle Street, which is the street running north-south here before it hits 78th Avenue, which is where the rental car uh, companies are for emergency response to ensure that emergency response. I'm sorry to push you along. We've got can, about 13 minutes and we definitely have questions. All right, sounds good. This is just the scope of the work, uh, the entire Pena phase 1B. And this just shows the, this shows the improved safety and traffic operations um, in terms of um, improving the weaving movements as well as um, the ingress, egress onto Pena Boulevard. Again, we're following the same Pena alignment. Just another photograph or image showing that. The last image is uh, showing the, the um, diverging diamond interchange. And that really is to improve safety, provide a bus priority line, um, and, and also a multi-use path on Jackson Gap. This shows the multi-use trail that will start south of 75th Avenue and move all the way up to 78th, um, and will provide a safe, safe passage for both pedestrians and bikers. And on the right side, it shows the bus priority line, lane, which will give uh, priority signaling to the shuttle buses um, as they uh, go inbound to Pena. So that's it. In conclusion, we're just seeking approval for this Flatiron Constructors contract for $50.793 million. And the project provides multimodal upgrades for DEN, rental car buses, bus only priorities, and trails for bikes and pedestrians, along with uh, major safety improvements for this section of Pena. Thank you. Uh, that was fabulous. I asked you to speed it up and you went through six slides and 60 seconds. So. <laughs> Uh, we do have questions. Uh, Councilmember Flynn. Thank you. Could you do that at every meeting? I'm kidding. Uh, Brandon, uh, I just want to make sure I understand the rental car access. That's the old construction road we used uh, when the transit the station was on and the A-line were under construction. Uh, the, uh, but it looks like it's only serving rental car shuttles and other vehicles outbound from the terminal. There's no return to terminal via these, this dedicated roadway. They have to go back on Jackson Gap and Pena to go around the terminal? It, they do, that is correct, Councilman Flynn. Um, one of the items though, let me go back and it's not gonna do it justice because the <clears throat> image is very small, but they will have the Jackson Gap, the Diverging the, Diamond Interchange. The Texas U-turn? Yes, yeah. it will provide them with priority access as they uh, leave the rental car facilities and move uh, on Jackson Gap for inbound Pena. But you are correct, they will still have to loop um, back onto inbound Pena at that Jackson Gap interchange. Okay, and <clears throat> what, what was the final cost of 1A? dollars just million. over 40 million dollars so and this is 50 this is 50. So it's under the 90 it's on yes correct and i i didn't want to say we would complete it for less than although that's what we will contract for as you know this is a hard bid project and there are some unforeseens but i do think that we will complete this project for the same cost or less okay and again can you do that on every contract <laughs> we're fortunate every meeting every contract yeah, we had, we're fortunate we had four really good bids by reputable companies um, who know our work. Thank you. Th does there need to be another, a new bridge constructed over the East Terminal outbound for the West Terminal outbound private road? 
No. They can use the same, the existing bridge? Yes. The right lane? Okay. Thank you. That'll cut, that cuts down on the cost tremendously. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, thank you, Councilmember Flynn. Uh, Councilmember Gilmore, do you mind if I ask just some guidance from our uh, attorneys? Oh, sure, um, Council Chair. There continues to be some discussion about whether we can or cannot vote on 233 today. Uh, will you weigh in? Sorry, Councilman, I, I didn't catch your entire question. It was If the question was, can you vote on an item that's on consent today, is that the question? Yes, sir. Um, so currently under our rule 5.6a, if a matter is scheduled for consent and it's not called off by a member, then it's deemed unanimously approved by the body. A member can call something off of consent prior to the meeting, uh, which is preferred because then we can meet our notice requirements under the DRMC, or it can call it off at the meeting. If they call it off at the meeting, then it has to be scheduled for the following meeting because we have notice requirements for open meetings under the DRMC. So the options are either approving it on consent today or allowing a member to call it off of consent today. Um, if it's called off of consent today, then it has to move to the following meeting. Does that clarify? Uh, you said there has to be advanced notice. And I think uh, Councilmember Lewis did provide notice yesterday, but, um, uh, but, but perhaps, so can you tell me what advanced notice means and what does notice mean? Sure. So by advanced notice, I mean notice from the council to the public. So notice on the council committee agenda. Okay. Thank you. Um, council member Gilmore. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I, um, if it's okay, uh, Mr. Chair, I'd like to have further clarification from our legal counsel. So um, because this was scheduled um, for today's meeting um, and it's on consent, I believe in the past, if um, somebody wants to have a roll call vote, because it's on consent, we could ask for a separate roll call vote in committee and we could vote on that instead of it being unanimous. And if it passes, it would then move on to the full council. Is that correct? So that's actually not correct. That is something that I said and I was incorrect with that. So in the past, I don't believe that we've called things off of a consent agenda for a roll call vote. I think they're generally scheduled for action so that we can do a roll call vote uh, upon discussion with John. So I, I think that if we do call it off of the consent agenda for a roll call vote, we would be taking action on it and it's not noticed for action. Okay, all right. The uh, And I guess it would mean further clarification. Thank you for that. Um, and I, I guess my question would be, because in talking with Dan, um, because this is a grant and there are time limitations on the grant, um, I know that timing is close. And so I wondered if um, just understanding from my colleagues who called it off, Councilmember Lewis and Parity, if you were calling it off for an entire presentation or if you were calling it off in order to vote no on it for it to go forward to the whole council. So I was calling it off because I had a few questions um, that I wanted to discuss in this committee, but I also wanted to have the opportunity to vote no on it, understanding that it's going to go to the full body anyways. Okay, great, thank you. And Councilmember Parity, is that the same or? Yeah, I, I hadn't totally made up my mind, quite frankly, about voting no or yes, but I have um, I have a whole set of questions that, I, that I'd like to get answers to. I mean, I think they're questions that are actually pretty closely related to this action item, and I 
you know, I think there are things I could ask regardless, um, but I would like an opportunity to vote on it. Okay, thank you. Um, and so I just wanted to clarify that because that's some of the conversation, the background conversation. You're kind of watching what we do behind the scenes, but we're doing it here for you to see. And so just understanding that, um, that even if it moves, um, and, and I guess that would be the follow-up question because um, these council members who wanna vote no on it in committee will also have an opportunity to vote no on it on the floor. And so I know customarily we have in different situations that we don't try to hold up or stop things in committee because we really want to have the benefit of the full body. And so I just would like you to weigh in on, on that. So I, I think you're right. Um, it's, it's a policy and procedure question really for the committee. Uh, you can vote things out of committee today uh, on, the, on the consent agenda or a member can call it off of the consent agenda to schedule it for the following committee. Those are sort of the two legal options. In terms of policy and procedure, your point's well made, which is that the same members who are in the committee can vote however they would like to vote at later opportunities. Right, okay. And in the past, I've also um, you know, seen members of a committee say, well, I'm gonna vote affirmatively to move this on to the whole council, but when it comes before council on a Monday night, I will be a no or whatever you're making your public statement about. Um, and I guess, um, thank you for that. And I think Mr. Chair, I'm still in the, the queue here. And so I'd like to ask um, Lisa or whoever might be able to um, talk to the, the um, grant funding dollars um, because I know that um, it sounds like we are booked up next week at committee, but we might be able to make it an action item it, knowing that there won't be a presentation, but really for a presentation, it would be the 13th of March is what I'm understanding. And if you could talk a little bit about the, the timing and some of those um, issues that you're dealing with. Sure, absolutely. Um, so as it stands right now, um, so Dr. Cog had approved all of their TIP grants last, I believe it was August. Um, and so after that commences, um, CDOT, who kind of plays the banker role for Dr. Cog because Dr. Cog doesn't actually touch the federal money, um, CDOT distributes these funds. So we are in the process of signing an intergovernmental agreement with CDOT to make sure that um, we can receive said funds. Um, that process takes anywhere from four to nine months. It varies from project to project. So um, all to say that there is a little bit of flexibility, I believe, um, but you know, the sooner that we can move these IGAs, the faster. Um, looking in the big broad picture, so this TIP grant is for the period of 2024 to 2027, um, which obviously we are in 2024. Um, absolute worst case, should we not be able to spend these dollars and get them reimbursed by the end of 2027, um, they would potentially go back um, into the cycle for others. So um, that's what we're looking at. Okay, great. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, even in what you've done thus far to date, um, it has, um, really helped with some of the traffic issues, especially with then employee traffic issues, but we know that we continue to struggle um, in the far north, especially as Pena has become um, more of a, a connector 
um, for folks getting in and out of the community. And so appreciate that. And then um, I will follow up. Um, I'll defer to my um, colleagues, um, council members Lewis and Parity to ask their questions. And maybe before we move forward, we can have clarification from them on um, you know, their thoughts on uh, 233 um, going forward. So thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And thank you, um, Anshul, for further clarification. Thank you, Councilmember Gilmore. Um, we're very close into borrowing time from uh, from our next presentation, um, but totally understand you have questions. So, Councilmember Parity. Yeah, thank you, um, Chairman Hines. So, um, I think the, generally the questions that I have, which which are applicable to both 232 and 233, frankly, because they relate to the TDM plan. Um, we've had conversations about this, um, but I, I just want to continue raising up that I think the elimination of looking at an RTD option of um, A-line service expansion, yeah, doing that in different ways um, is a mistake. Um, and the reason for that is understanding all of the logistical issues with doing that, which Councilman Flynn knows um, as much about as anyone in this room probably um, and has educated me about considerably. Um, even understanding all of that, understanding the expense, um, if we don't continue to assess that as an option, first of all, it, it essentially goes off the table by default. Um, in the TDM plan, that's included kind of as a phase three option, so a couple of years down the road. But in the meantime, we're doing an environmental impact assessment to look at um, options for Pena Boulevard, um, which is, yes, it's a road. It's also the way that we get people from Denver to DIA, right? Um, and so also understanding the revenue diversion concern, um, given that a lot of what the A-line carries is airline uh, airport traffic, both employees and, and people that are um, that are accessing the airport for, um, for planes. Um, I think that assessing those options together um, would is the only way we're gonna have a political opportunity. Um, and by we, I mean the city, the state, you know, RTD, all of the above, um, to try to secure the funding that would be needed for A-line expansion. If we don't do that, um, and we instead invest in, in one of these options for Pena that are included in the um, master plan, um, then the A-line the a option is we've lost that investment and we haven't even considered putting that investment into the A-line or whether that's legally possible or to what degree. So um, I have a lot of concern about that. Um, and this is one of those projects that is happening in so many little phases with you know council um, weighing in at different points along the line. The item that we're voting on likely that may go through on consent today involves um, approving a grant and of course we never were glad that you sought that and we never don't want to approve a grant um, but we have these um, these little moments of public oversight of what is an incredibly important public decision um, and this is one of them so I just want to I just want to put that out there today I don't know that I have questions so much as um, want to point out that I think that um, has been a, a flawed decision point in this process and something that I will be looking for the opportunity to rectify if I can do that from, from this dais. And I, I appreciate you all, and I'm very excited about a lot, a lot of what's in the TDM as well. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Councilmember Parity. Councilmember Flynn. Um, okay, uh, Councilmember Romare Campbell. Thank you, Committee Chair. Um, I just had a... Um, a real quick question as well uh, for the TDM and for the project. Um, and I know that we're talking about, you know, um, to, uh, to not only the sustainability components of it, um, as I also read it, or am I understanding just being the person who Ubers family and friends to and from the airport, um, I'm a frequent driver on Pena and in this area, probably much like everybody else here. Uh, but I also see this as a safety issue. 
Um, I've had a lot of near misses myself. I've seen a lot of near misses as I understand the, the um, presentation. Can you talk a little bit more about the safety component of this? Because I think there, I definitely think efficiencies, but I was also really understanding this as tremendous safety components that are needed on that curve because of, um, of the traffic that occurs with the larger vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you bear with me a second, I can pull the actual statistics yeah. out. Yeah. Um, great question. And actually, we do have the safety information. Um, so during the period of 2016 to 2022, there are actually more than 1,050 crashes along Pena Boulevard. Um, six of these resulted in a fatality. Um, but something that's really interesting is as we dive into these crashes, um, we found that 44% of them are rear-end crashes, um, which are predominantly due to traffic congestion, right? The stop and go, it's that traffic congestion. So we're looking at these improvements on Pena Boulevard to hopefully minimize and reduce the number of crashes, um, minimize the amount of congestion, and hopefully make it safer for everyone. Good question. <laughs> Thank you. That was my only question. I think it's just really important that we are also thinking about this beyond as far as um, for the cars that are on the road currently and for how people are currently getting to the airport that we increase that safety. Thank you. Thank you, uh, committee chair. Uh, thank you, Councilmember Member Romero-Campbell. Uh, Councilmember Klein. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. There's nothing about this item or the one that's on consent right now uh, that precludes the city through the airport or through the administration working with RTD on A-line expansion. Uh, Director Washington, you were the general manager of RTD uh, when uh, you and I were both working on the East Corridor, the Eagle Project, and built this line. And there are several agreements in place that uh, the city and RTD made when it comes to expansion. But there's nothing about these two contracts that precludes that dialogue from con from continuing. Is that not your not assessment? At all. Not at all. You know, I, I would ask uh, my colleagues. Uh, 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 Council Members Parity and Lewis, would you agree to leave these on consent and uh, and let it go to the floor and have the discussion there so as not to hold this up? I was I was the chair of the Denver Regional Council of Governments when these TIP amendments went through. There were four rounds, and Denver received a total uh, allotment of about $112 million through four uh, processes, the uh, regional and sub-regional in two different tip cycles, $112 million. And of that, this is the only five, this five million is the only highway related funding that was, that was approved. All of the rest of that 112 million minus the five is dedicated to transit, bicycle, pedestrian improvements throughout the city. Um, so I would ask uh, my colleagues, would you allow this to go through to the floor so as to keep it on schedule? understanding yeah. it doesn't preclude uh, transit option. I'm sorry, Councilman Flynn, I thought I said that. I'm fine with this going through to the floor. Um, what I want is a conversation about it, and I don't know um, that anything related to this project will continue to have my vote on the floor, um, but I have no problem with it going through today given our you know, non-kill committee structure. I said uh, the same thing earlier. I don't know if, if my mic's not on, but I said I have no problem with this going to the full body. I just had a few questions that I wanted to ask. So it can stay on consent. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Councilmember Flynn. Um, uh, so we do have one action item in front of us. Um, it looks like Councilmember Flynn is moving it. Do we have a second? 
Councilmember Gilmore. All right, great. Um, should we do a roll call for this? No? Okay, great. Uh, then this will move forward to the full body. Um, if uh, uh, just to put Dan, if you would be here uh, when this comes before the full council, I imagine there will be questions then. And uh, and to be totally fair, I'm not sure I'm excited about um, widening Pena. Just uh, I, as I understand in 2019, it was a half a billion dollar project all in. And that was, we've got additional cost um, uh, burdens now than we did then. And so anyway, just wanted to share it. So, uh, Thank you, Den. Uh, thank you, uh, committee members. And uh, let's move into our briefing. Apologies for uh, cutting in a little bit into your time. So the next, uh, the next item is uh, 0251 uh, briefing from Arts and Venues. Uh, they're your hour 2024 cultural highlights and the Metro Region Arts Economy Synopsis. Uh, Director Hollera, please introduce yourself and take it away. Great, thank you. Uh, council Chair, Council Committee members, uh, we're thrilled to be here to talk about the impact that Denver is having through the Arts and Venues Department on our arts and culture sector. We've got three speakers today. I'll, I will go very briefly. I'm Gretchen Hallra. I'm the Executive Director of Arts and Venues. This is my first presentation to you all, so I'm thrilled to be here. I'll then hand it off to Tariana Navas-Nieves in her first presentation as our newly named Deputy Director of our department, followed by a presentation by the CBCA. So uh, just in brief, I will focus on a few slides here that talk about uh, who we are in the city, a general introduction, and I'll move to some of the numbers for what we do in the city at our venues. We do not have a, uh, an action item today, but we do have several large contracts that will be coming forward to you. So my hope is that this provides some context for upcoming contracts as well. Uh, rather than go through our mission and our commitment to EDI and who we are, if a picture uh, paints a thousand words, a video is probably a million words. So we have a one minute, 36 second video to share with you on good times for good which is who we are as a social cultural enterprise. And if it's all right to start that video. Chances are you've created memories of a lifetime at one of Denver's extraordinary entertainment venues. Moments with the kind of flair, promise, and lasting impact that only good times can produce. Your good time is fueling Denver's cultural and artistic landscape because Denver Arts and Venues invest money raised in our venues back into the community. Through free cultural events and programs and grants for local artists and arts organizations so that they can flaunt their gifts using the Mile High City as their canvas. So the next time you stick around for the encore, settle in for the crescendo know that the flow you get into at yoga on the rocks is a flow that goes both ways it was a collective mission to create access to arts and culture for everyone in denver to protect and invest in the legacy of our vineyards in public art and to ensure that neighborhood talents have what they need to shine 
as our city stakes its claim as the cultural destination for the Mountain West. Denver Arts and Venues. Good times for good. Thank you. I hope uh, that's as exciting for you as it is for all of us. I want to, uh, I will focus still on the good times and then I'll hand off to Tariana to talk about the four good. Uh, just briefly a reminder of our venues and I'll move into the numbers on the impact of the Denver Performing Arts Complex and its multiple theaters and event spaces there. Uh, we do oversee the Colorado Convention Center and our partner agreements. Um, we have events at the Denver Coliseum, including the upcoming March Powwow. Uh, our new venue at Loretto Heights, our first in 10 years in Southwest Denver, we're very excited about, and we'll be back to you with that in more detail. The McNichols Building at Civic Center Park, Red Rocks Amphitheater, and um, by the numbers, you can see that most of our impact, just in terms of size of the over 1,000 events and 2.7 million attendees, is at the Art Arts Complex and at Red Rocks Amphitheater. Uh, this is a little more detail on our uh, enterprise model or business model of revenue sources and investment and impact. So the revenue sources on the left feeding into and funding what you see on the right. Uh, lots of work on venue improvement and maintenance to stay up to speed with our facilities and be competitive in this market. We have venue activation and cultural programs, grants and cultural investments that Tariana will speak to, and then obviously sector leadership, education and training. And there's a, just an, one more um, overview of our events. I will say that we are really proud of the grant support that we're able to offer for $3 million uh, grant and program support. Also 350 artists and art organizations uh, receiving support from us with a focus on historically marginalized communities and 250,000 residents in Denver impacted through our programming. So it is a lot of work. We have a great team that does that work. And for our next slide, I will pass it off to Tariana. Thank you. Hello, uh, committee chair and committee members. It's wonderful for me to share our for good to our community. Let's see here. Oops. And will you introduce yourself for the record? Tariana Navas Nieves, and like Gretchen said, I'm in my new role as Deputy Director for Denver Arts and Venues. And congratulations. Thank you. So I'll start with the Dynamic Downtown Denver Grant Program, which this is a new grant that was launched uh, late last year, as you may remember, to activate downtown. And we are investing $350,000. And I'm excited to share that many of the programs will continue in this quarter and early summer. And we'll have a celebration of our grantees, I believe March 21st. So we're looking forward to sharing more. The EDI at Arts and Culture Fund is one of the programs I'm most proud of. This is a partnership with our Human Rights and Community Partnerships Commissions. As you know, we have 10 commissions and we are adding one commission this year, uh, the Youth Commission. And each of those commissions received $10,000 and they decide how to invest those dollars, uh, supporting the communities that they represent. And they are focused on an arts and cultural component that support those communities, which could be the disability community, the uh, African-American community, the Latino community. And this is really illustrates our leading role nationally as a 
a philanthropic leader in how to make decisions regarding grants. And this may seem like something that you're used to with arts and venues in which we are not the ones making those decisions, but in the philanthropic sector, boards and staff are generally those that make the decisions instead of community members. And we're very, very proud that all cultural investments and decision-making with regards to grants are made by community members throughout Denver. The Arts and Culture Fund is a fund that is in partnership with the National Endowment for the Arts. We'll be launching this grant in late March. The significance of this grant is that the National Endowment for the Arts, the, for many, many years and the majority of the times, they uh, direct their funds through our state art agencies. They generally do not fund local art agencies. And through our efforts in the past couple of years, they have started to connect more with local art agencies in the past couple of years. We've actually received uh, close to $600,000 through that partnership, which is something uh, new nationally. And those will be uh, to support programs um, in, in the city and county of Denver. The PSER HERE program, and I think many of you are familiar with this program, it's really driven by neighborhoods in your council districts. So this is not meant to be an organization that is coming from the outside, but these are really neighborhoods in your own council districts and are meant to be temporary projects that activate um, uh, outdoor public spaces. And we have, through many, many years, provided more than $600,000 in, um, in Denver throughout all council districts. The Urban Arts Fund is a program that all of you love, and you know that we have uh, hundreds of murals throughout the city. Uh, we have been focusing on the Urban Arts Fund Engage initiative, and this one is really focused on that community building and community relationship, and uh, some examples of those projects have been our partnership of artists with Denver Health Methadone Clinic or the Julian Youth Detention Center. Last year, you may remember that we invested in uh, Denver's historic Chinatown mural and also a partnership with the Mexican consulate with the gorgeous mural at Auraria campus. If you have not seen it, I encourage you to do that. And it was to celebrate 200 years of relationships between Mexico and Denver. Arts and society. So for context, Colorado has a, a strong philanthropic sector. However, there is not a lot of funding solely dedicated to the arts. What that means is when we think about Denver, there's really only three funders, three main funders in our city that are solely focused in the arts. And that is the state, which also is responsible for funding the entire state a very small foundation, which is Bonfi Stanton Foundation, and then Arts and Venues, the city. So we have been working on building partnerships throughout the state with other foundations to leverage our investments and increase those dollars. And to give you an example, Arts and Society brings this arts and focus, which is not solely fo uh, focusing on arts organizations, but let's say, a social service organization that brings arts into, um, into our community. But in this case, what started with three funders uh, a few years ago, today we have nine funders, including Colorado Health Foundation, the Colorado Trust, 
El Pomar. And what that translates into is we have over $600,000 from all of those funders now, and which means that we continuously make the case to those funders that perhaps originally thought of the arts as something on a wall or on a, or on a theater, and now look at arts and culture as a healthy neighborhood, right? Healthy communities, thriving communities. And those dollars have made a tremendous difference in our, in our funding. Equity in Arts Learning is another example of our behind the scenes efforts to really leverage and bring together other non-arts focused funders. We just launched this fund uh, this year. So I'm very uh, excited to share. And this is to support youth in our schools throughout the state. And now we are close to $500,000 because of those relationship and strategic partnerships that we have been building to support youth ages four to 21 through art schools. And this is really to increase access to arts education for historically marginalized youth. Of course, we all love our Denver Public Art Program, which is our 1% for public art, which of course funds through capital projects over a million dollars. We have over 400 uh, works in our collection, uh, valued at over $45 million. And what is really exciting is that, of course, even when the pandemic, right, we did not slow down. Construction continues, which that translates to the fact that we have over 80 active projects currently. And that activates our city throughout many, many council districts. And we consider that a cultural investment because while we talk about grants, there are tremendous cultural investments through artists and also to fabricators in our city. Uh, some highlighted signature events are those events like Yoga on the Rocks, Film on the Rocks, low-cost uh, ticket events, uh, our exhibitions at McNichols, and many more. Of course, our Mayor's Awards really highlight the talent in our city, and I, I know that this is definitely is one of my favorite events in, uh, throughout the year. It's one of the most inspiring events, so I hope that you will consider attending this year if you haven't. And we recognize artists and arts organizations that have significantly impacted our cultural landscape and they also receive an honorarium um, as part of that uh, award. Of course, the Five Points Jazz Festival which is a signature event in Five Points. As you know, it is the Harlem of the West and we are excited uh, to be planning already for uh, this year. They are in the process of selecting our bands which often we have close to 50 bands performing. We'll have four outdoor stages and is an incredible family fun field day for all. Our drop day is one that I know many of you uh, participate and is one in which we like to partner. And uh, what is really wonderful about this event is that it's really taken a life of its own. We started this in 2015, and now there is an actual Facebook page, and we have over 6,000 members uh, part of that page, and this is really on its own. It's not arts and venues, not just pushing for that, but this is really the community. And even though that we often uh, hide uh, blue bears in all of our council districts, these are artists and parents and youth hiding artwork all throughout the city. And really this is what um, Surprise and Delight is about. And of course, our city council partnerships. And this is something that is 
very much about um, ensuring that we have arts and culture represented in all of our council districts. But furthermore, this is really about building relationships with all of you. We like to connect with you and give the opportunity. Each council district, including at large, receives $2,500. And then you get to select how do you want to invest in your arts and culture community. Um, my kids go to TJ. I'm looking at District 4, <laughs> Councilwoman uh, Romero Campbell. And $2,500 went to support TJ youth artists to, um, in their, uh, to be able to beautify the school. And I'm looking at Councilman Flynn in District 2 that supported uh, DSST. So every council uses their own dollars to invest in, a, in, in an organization or in a project that is meaningful to them. And Art Large, uh, a really meaningful project is Art Large. They invested their dollars in Adelitas, which is a program that supports women that have been uh, victims of domestic, uh, domestic violence. And they invested those dollars in a ballet folklorico uh, performance to celebrate uh, these women. Uh, creative sector leadership. I want to highlight a few of these because as a local art agency, we are recognized not just locally and regionally, but at a national level. And I had the honor of being invited by the White House uh, recently to uh, visit and being part of a conversation with uh, the National Endowment for the Arts, the first gentleman, the um, uh, Surgeon General, and he uh, spoke about arts and culture as medicine. And as we are um, facing a pandemic of loneliness and how critical arts and culture are to the health, not just to the spiritual health, but literally our physical and spiritual health and how important it is to bring arts and culture into a civic uh, infrastructure. And the other one I wanna mention, which I'm extremely proud is our How to Be an Anti-Racist Organization. This is a series, a free series that is offered um, free to anyone. And we sometimes have over 1200 um, people that sign up from all over the world. And this is really about how do you weave um, equity into all of the operations from arts and cultural organizations. And last but not least, I am very, very excited to share that we are very soon, we will be uh, announcing the update of our cultural plan. And I know some of you have been paying close attention. And what this means is that since 2014, we have been conducting a statistically valid survey over sampling for Latinos and African-Americans uh, for our residents listening and asking how they feel about arts culture in their neighborhoods, in their community. And in 2020, 2021, we also conducted a rigorous um, uh, sector qualitative interviews. And I'm looking at Councilman Flynn, he was part of that. Um, and this is really connecting with the sector. In 2020, 2021, we of course focus on the challenges during a pandemic, during a reckoning of racial injustice time. And what were their hopes and aspirations to really get us through this, those difficult times? And we are, as we speak, conducting the 2024 data gathering that will really capture uh, what is needed uh, from our cultural sector or in our neighborhood. And what's really unique about this update of a cultural plan is this, is that this will not be um, a cultural plan as many are used to. This is not 
Tatiana saying what she wants to do, or Gretchen, or even our mayor. This is really us capturing what the sector wants and hopes for, what they need, what our residents need, and our role has been to listen. So our message is really, this is Denver's cultural commitment. This is our commitment to our sector and to our residents to bring arts and culture as a way to heal, as a way to thrive for our thriving Denver and our thriving neighborhoods. So I want to end with that. And our next speaker will then go beyond our city and go take us to kind of a higher level in terms of the economic impact, right? This is not just about what's right and what's healthy, but actually how this is really an economic driver to our city and beyond. So thank you. Thanks, Tariana and Gretchen. Uh, my name is Kristen Crampton Day. I'm the executive director of Colorado Business Committee for the Arts, or since that's a mouthful, CBCA. We're a 39-year-old nonprofit whose mission is to advance Colorado's creative economy by connecting business and the arts. And we do that through advocacy, research, training, engagement, and volunteerism in the arts. Um, CBCA is a longtime partner with Denver Arts and Venues, and we appreciate uh, your time um, inviting us here today to share our latest economic activity study of Metro Denver culture. So as Tariana said, I'm going to focus more on the economic uh, impacts of the nonprofit arts and cultural and scientific organizations that are in our seven county metro region that are funded through the Scientific Cultural Facilities District or SCFD, which you are all familiar with. Um, of course, many of these um, organizations um, that are funded through the, the SCFD, there's about 300 of them. They all have to complete grant reports. So all of you see research data all the time. This is actually 100% reliable because in order for them to get their funding, they have to complete these grant reports. So the beauty of this is that um, CBCA has been producing this research report. Um, 2023 was our 30th anniversary of producing this research. So we not only have the latest data that looks at 2022 figures, um, but we also have this longitudinal data dating back three years where we have some comparisons to show how our nonprofit arts and cultural sector has grown over the last 30 years. What you're gonna see is the remarkable recovery of the nonprofit arts and cultural sector as a result of the pandemic in this data. Um, but you're also going to see some areas um, that have not fully recovered yet and why it's really important um, as policymakers to understand the ongoing continued investment we need to make in the arts. Um, this latest study was presented by U.S. Bank. We thank them for their support. They've been a longtime uh, supporter of this study, as well as it was conducted in partnership with BBC Research. And again, um, it, it paints an overall optimistic picture. Oh, I, did I go the wrong way? Well, oh, two more, there we go. So let me just dive in here. Okay, hitting it again. Tariana, you have the magic touch. Okay. Um, so um, the first slide I want to share with you is um, really the big number, if there's one number to remember here today, is this 2.6 billion 
of total economic activity that is generated from the nonprofit arts and cultural sector. Um, not surprisingly, since 2020, we were in the midst of the pandemic. This is a 72% increase in that economic activity. But I think the more relevant number is that it's a 13.6% increase over 29 pre-pandemic, which was an all-time high. So what this shows is not only recovery and resiliency of the sector, but also growth. Um, total economic activity is defined by the ripple effect from direct and indirect spending on operations, audience engagement, and capital projects, um, which significantly impact our regional economy. So here's a little bit further breakdown of you can look at, okay, I didn't touch anything. What happened? There we go. <laughs> it's magic. Um, you can see 2019, 2020, and 2022. You'll see that the investments and capital uh, projects did um, go down. We also know that um, there has been some general bond investments. So maybe in our next study, we'll see that number go back up for capital investments. But really um, the big ones is that audience uh, spending has again, not only recovered from 2019, um, but also grown as well as the overall operating expenditures. Um, couple of quick things to talk about um, when it comes to operating expenditures, think of programming costs, supplies, rent, personnel expenses. I'm gonna dig a, a little bit more into personnel in a minute. And then audience spending, think of all those ancillary expenditures beyond admission, like subscriptions, concessions, um, spending on meals, transportation, that ripple effect. And then um, capital spending, of course, is renovations and new facilities. Mouse does not like me. Oh, thank you, Gretchen. Um, so economic impact of cultural tourism. Um, actually, I want to go back a slide. My apologies. Here we go. Doesn't want to do that either. Okay. Here we go. This was the big thing. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. Um, chair. Um, the economic impact of federal funding was 81 million, and I think this is really important to point out that this latest data had a lot of support from federal funds. This is like the ARPA Recovery Act. Those funds have been exhausted. So again, you see kind of a ridiculous number here in 2019. It was 2,754.2% increase in federal funding. Uh, it was one-time funding that's gone away. Um, and it was certainly critical during the pandemic, um, but it really um, is something that has been depleted and we need to find other resources to make up that funding. Hey, it worked. Um, the next one I wanted to talk about was cultural tourism. This is really important, this 654 million, because this is money that's coming into Denver in the metro region as a result of arts and culture that otherwise would not be coming into our economy. Again, this is a 15% increase over 2019. So this, again, not, not only shows recovery, but growth for the sector, which is really important to, again, driving our economy. International visitors also increased um, during this time period, about 1%. And then um, I want to talk a little bit about personnel and employment. Uh, a lot of people in the sector since... Um, 
you know, it was the first to close, the last to reopen during the pandemic. There were a lot of jobs lost. And thankfully, we've seen those jobs recover. Um, we see a 1.2% increase over 2019. Um, but we also see that there has been um, an increase in personnel costs. So these 300 some SCFD funded nonprofit arts and cultural organizations are now paying about 15% more for their personnel. And again, that's due to inflation, it's due to rising costs of a competitive job market um, that the nonprofit art sector is competing with. Um, but I want you to remember that 15% because we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, oh, and I want to say the largest increase in employment was full-time um, employment and contractors. So personnel expense, this is that 15.3% that I just touched on, trying to move through this quickly. Attendance, this is one of those areas that has not fully recovered yet. Um, so pre-pandemic, we had reached a milestone of over 15 million people attending nonprofit arts and cultural events um, in Denver in the seven county metro region. Um, and unfortunately, we're still down about 15% from pre-pandemic levels. Um, again, there can be a number of reasons for that. People have found other things to, to do with their time. Um, some people may feel like um, they're not ready to come back into a, a theater environment and they still have fear of, of COVID and other things. So we don't know exactly what the reasons are, but what we know is that attendance numbers are not where they were pre-pandemic. Even with that, we're still, uh, if you compare the sector to all of Denver's major sports teams, we're still more than double what the in-person attendance is for all of Denver's sports teams. Um, and, or I take that back, I'm sorry, we're triple more than the sports teams and for the ski industry, we're more than double. So I think it really puts into perspective um, how important um, this sector is for driving the economy because we need those people to attend and participate in those events. So again, there's a little bit of a math problem right now, 15% increase in personnel costs for the sector, but yet attendance is down 15%. And as I mentioned earlier, those federal funds have been depleted and gone away. So that's something our sector is going to be challenged by. Um, in the coming year and with our next study, um, hopefully we'll have more positive news to report. Um, real quick with education, um, the SCFD uh, is arts for all and has uh, invested a lot in bringing the arts to um, students of both youth and adults. Um, this is another area that has not recovered pre-pandemic levels. It's expensive to bus students, um, and we also know that they're reaching students in other ways now virtually as well. Um, but we would like to see that number um, get back to where it was, hopefully, um, in future studies and, and get um, those students into those, uh, into those cultural facilities. Um, in terms of giving, I think this is really important to show the economic impact of SCFD on our um, metro region. Uh, Tariana touched earlier about the kind of unique funding environment that we have in, in Denver, that there's very few foundations that fund, that are committed to funding the arts. And so you can see from this slide, the SCFD at 27.2% is the largest funder of arts and culture in 
our metro region. Um, we've also seen, um, again, that government number is up from, because of the federal funding. Um, foundations and corporate um, are also investing in individual. We've continued to see um, growth, which is really encouraging. Um, I think that area that the areas that tend to be a little bit more fickle with the economy, I was just at a Colorado Chamber event yesterday that kept talking about we're in a recession, we're in a recession. That's when we see corporate investment go down. Um, so again, being, um, you know, we're just very fortunate to have that investment of the SCFD, which is about $85 million that is being uh, distributed out to these nearly 300 arts and cultural organizations, most of them in the city of Denver, all of the tier ones in Denver and many others um, located within the city. So um, we have more information um, in our white paper. Um, in the interest of time, I won't go into that, but I did bring for you all a one-page uh, highlights um, document that I'd be happy to leave um, for you all, but I'm also happy to answer any questions as well as um, Tariana and Gretchen. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, the, honest, we have uh, several people in the queue. Councilmember Parity. I didn't remember getting in queue, but since I am, <laughs> um, thank you guys for this. It's exciting to, to dig down in the details a little bit. Um, and I think the reason I got in the queue was just to say that when we had the um, art drop day, my my spouse likes to call me Sarah No Fun. Don't laugh, you guys, because you know there's a lot of serious things happening on city council. Um, and that was like my favorite day of getting to be very fun and just do something cool. And the lady who got the blue bear was elated. So that's a totally trivial comment. Um, I appreciate this, like the depth of this presentation. Um, and I would love to, um, have a follow-up meeting at some point to talk to you all more about um, some of the ways that we've unfortunately had to repurpose your buildings for sheltering uses, which I know is not ideal for anyone. Um, but beyond that, just thank you for today. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Councilmember Parity. And um, my blue bear placement was picked in minutes. It was under the blue bear. Uh, Councilmember Flynn. Thank you. Very, very creative. Hiding in plain sight. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Gretchen, I think, uh, I don't know that you'd be able to answer this right here and now, but maybe you could get the council members on the committee and, and the rest of us an accounting or a status report on the seat tax fund. Uh, in the 2024 budget, it's estimated that we would receive uh, $15 million in surplus seat tax fund that could be used for capital, uh, maybe the Loretto Theater. But... Uh, that begs the question as to how much of the, of the seat tax being generated is used to pay off uh, existing debt on any of the facilities that have received uh, bond funds. Could you provide that for us? I will need Unless to you know it off the top of I your head. I will need to phone a friend on that, but we will get that back to you. Okay. Um, and just for everyone here, seat tax uh, that is uh, uh, collected by the city is uh, specifically uh, targeted towards maintenance of our facilities, capital maintenance of facilities, mm -hmm. and had been used to repay the debt, the uh, certificates of participation on the LA Opera House, so which has uh, recently been retired. So. Uh, seat tax can go for either maintenance, capital maintenance needs, or for the uh, uh, debt that we use for uh, larger reconstruction projects. But as we enter into our new, you know, our 24 uh, budget process uh, for reductions and for 2025, I will get that to you and, uh, and quickly. 
Okay, thank you. I think the only, only other thing that I have is to say hello to Tariana and congratulations. Uh, in the small world category, our first item, uh, Tariana and I were colleagues on the RTD Eagle project uh, that built the train to the airport. And I believe you worked for Ed Romero at the time and then came along with Marion Combs. And so it's, a, it's great to reconnect. Thank you. That's all, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Councilmember Flynn. Councilmember Romero Campbell. Uh, thank you, Committee Chair. Uh, just thank you for the presentation. I really um, appreciate it. And from the conversations that we've been having, uh, one thing that I wanted to really point out, and I think it's an exciting thing, you know, District 4 is Southeast Denver. And we've talked a lot about, you know, everybody thinks about all of the arts and culture happening downtown, which is extremely important. But I just really appreciate the idea of pulling arts experiences and culture out to um, the rest of the city and being able to connect people um, in that way. I know that we have, you know, a lot of people who, you know, you have to either leave the community in order to experience um, some of the wonderful things that we have or festivals and so forth. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that, but I just think that that is such a way to be able to link neighborhoods and individuals back to and to and from. No, thank you for that comment. And I can tell you that through data, through at least three times through our statistically mm -hmm. valid survey, mm -hmm. what we keep hearing is people want more activation and more arts and culture in their communities. Yeah. So we know that. And uh, we track all of our cultural investments, which includes public art, art in public spaces, as well as all of our grants uh, by council district, mm -hmm. right? So we're very aware of where our dollars are going and we identify, it allows us to, it informs our budgeting process. It allows us to look at the, gaps, right, and, and the areas that we want to make sure that uh, are represented when we look at our grant opportunities. So that is definitely top of mind. Um, and uh, I know my kids went to TJ, uh -huh. um, even District 6, which is my district. It's definitely in need of more arts and culture. So I, I really appreciate that because that is top of mind and uh, is certainly a, a critical part of our thinking and planning uh, when we look at the entirety of our of our city. Yeah, no, I, I so appreciate that. And, and again, I always have to give a shout out to um, one of our local artists that had a mural that put that got put up in um, at the Hampton Heights Library. And so that was um, Sogo Mijad who won the global award. And it is just, you know, a gem in our community and a, um, and just so incredibly proud of, of him living in District 4, but also what those future connects can be and finding those artists within our community and being able to lift that up. So I look forward to the opportunities um, that you listed out here to engage the PSU are here, et cetera. Um, I have so many more questions about it. And um, I just look forward to connecting offline with your office to be able to see some of these art projects brought down uh, to District 4. So. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, thank you. Can thank I, you, Committee Chair. Yep, thank you. Uh, Councilmember Lewis. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I just have one question for you. Um, you mentioned the $81 million and the impact to the federal funding. And I was curious of what that included. Like, is it a list of projects? Is it programs? Is it personnel? Uh, yeah, I, the funding was used for a variety um, of things. A lot of it was, um, you know, 
again, during the pandemic, the, with the um, organizations having to cut staff, um, certainly they use some of it towards personnel, but a lot of it was used towards programs and just operations to keep the doors open. So many of these organizations that are SCFD funded, are um, their business models are based on earned uh, revenue. And so when they're closed, they're not bringing in that earned revenue. So a lot of it was truly just to kind of keep the, the doors open. Um, and that funding was ARPA, it was um, some of the um, uh, Save Our Stages Act that went to venues. You know, there were different um, uh, federal funds that the organizations uh, received during, I think by then a lot of the PPP had been exhausted, but those were the primary things. Are you seeing folks needing to scale back or to stop a certain program that was, um, that was being offered? Some had to, um, but by 2022, um, they still had, they still were getting federal funding, but, but the doors were reopening in 2022. So they started earning back that, that revenue. Some programs were shut down, you know, 2020 and almost all of 2021 is when they started to come back. So a lot of it was getting those programs back online or bringing on new programs that, because, you know, again, things have changed kind of coming out of the, the pandemic. So it was a, it was used in all different ways by these 300 arts and cultural nonprofits. Got it. And then have you all started to discuss, I know you said that you were looking to figure out how to replace that 81 million. Have you all begin to discuss like what that could potentially be? The candid answer is no. I mean, as, okay. as a sector, um, I think it's, it's something that we are sharing um, that this is something we need to address because we are hearing from those nonprofit cultural partners that yeah, our personnel costs are up, our audience numbers are down, mm -hmm. but even that is really, um, it depends on who you talk to. Like some organizations I'll talk to and they're like, we're doing great, we're selling out our shows or our admission is great. And then others are like, we're still down. Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of hit or miss, okay. but we, as a sector, we do, we know that it's something that they are struggling with across the board and, and that this has been a, a tough labor, labor market that we're competing in. And, um, but we need, it's good that we're, we've brought in those jobs and that the sector's recovered with personnel. It's just, we need to get the audience numbers back up to where they were as well. One thing I know some organizations have done is for example, like Arvada Center was saying, we are actually doing fewer performances and, you know, instead of working six days a week, they might be working five days a week, you know? So they are trying to look at different things to try and, and manage that. Okay. Thank you so much. It's very helpful. You bet. And if I may uh, mention, just to give you a sense of just the need and like with an arts and society uh, grant, which is we distribute close to over $600,000, we are able to fund only about 27% yeah. of the applications that come. So that gives you a sense of the need versus the dollars available. Thank you for that addition. That is really helpful. Thank you all for this presentation. All right, thank you, Councilmember Lewis. Uh, thank you so much for for uh, for being here, uh, for presenting. I agree, art is medicine, and um, with the loneliness epidemic, but also uh, we've got a lot of division, a lot of stress in our society these days, and so I hope we all get a little bit more of that medicine. So, uh, no other. 
uh, people in the queue. So thank you so much for presenting. Uh, we are adjourned.